Welcome to this special Innovation Forum podcast. I'm Ian Welsh. We have been publishing some of the highlights from our spring online event series. Coming up now is the panel session from the recent Future of Food conference on soil carbon and how to boost soil health accurately and particularly how to measure the carbon benefits. Joining Innovation Forum's Toby Webb were Anastasia Volkova, CEO of Regrow, Carmen Barker-Lemay, Head of Strategic Partnerships at IIRR, and Britt Lundgren, Director of Organic and Sustainability Agriculture at Stonyfield Farm. We join the session as Toby is inviting the panel to make some opening comments. Anastasia, why don't you just do the quick 30-second intro on yourself first, then we'll go to Britt and then Carmen can do that and kick us off. So, Anastasia. Yeah, thank you so much, Toby, for having me and thank you for Innovation Forum for convening us all again this year uh, in the pretty seamless virtual environment. Um, my name is Valenstasia Volkova. I'm the CEO and co-founder of uh, Regrow Ag. Um, Regrow was formed as a merger of two companies of Pluricite and Dagen. And through that merger, um, William Salas is uh, one of my co-founders. Some of you might know him. Um, we at Regrow deliver software that powers the decarbonization of supply chain for major um, ag and food corporates by working on the farm, by working in the board meeting, all with the same data. Really excited to talk how we can get the right data from the farm and scale it so that we can all reward farmers. Great, thank you. Uh, Britt, tell us about yourself. Hi, thanks, Toby. It's so nice to be here and see some familiar faces on the, the call. I'm looking forward to the discussion. I'm Britt Lundgren. I'm the Senior Director of Sustainability for Lactalis US Yogurt, which includes the brands uh, Stonyfield, Siggy's, and Green Mountain Creamery. And I've been with um, Stonyfield for over a decade now and leading our work to reduce emissions from agriculture. Stonyfield has a science-based target with a goal of reducing emissions full scope 30% by 2030. And we know that over half of our emissions come from agriculture and 95% uh, of those agricultural emissions are from milk. So we've been very focused on the opportunity to reduce emissions from dairy farms. And in our organic dairy production system, our farms are very reliant on pasture. The organic standard requires that. So we've really focused in on the opportunities around boosting soil carbon in pasture and hayland. And I can talk some more about that. Thanks. Thanks, Britt. Uh, Carmen. Good morning, everyone from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Um, I'm Carmen Barker-Lemay and yes, head of strategic partnerships with IIRR. IIRR is an international development agency and we've got more than 60 years of history working with smallholder farmers, fishers and pastoralists. Um, we currently uh, office in uh, eight countries and two regions, Eastern Africa, um, one in Southern Africa and then uh, Southeast Asia. Um, we work uh, with the rural poor trying to uh, assist in getting them out of poverty um, with lives of dignity and self-reliance. Um, I was brought on just last summer because we were having more and more requests for uh, sort of that go-between with corporates and um, uh, foundations and impact investors. So my role is to find the opportunity for all of you to get engaged um, with, with the people on the ground. Thank you, Tony. Thanks, Carmen. Well, let's just continue with you for some thoughts on this. Um, we have convened a, a group recently with uh, BSI, British Standards Institution, 
uh, and I know Joe Griffiths is here from BSI, where we convened a group of experts to talk about this. I sent some of the bullet points to the panel. And what it revealed, of course, is how complex this area is, how fast moving it is, and of course, crucially, how important it is to both uh, you know, large farms and, and much smaller ones. So really interesting, Carmen, to hear your views on how this is all evolving and particularly around kind of measurement and of carbon benefits. So uh, back to you for some insight. Yeah, sure. So as you can imagine, in in our work, um, it isn't and really can't be a science project, right? Um, these these are people's lives. They're trying to raise enough food to eat, um, maybe some surplus that they can sell in the marketplace for uh, school fees for their kids, um, right? But we work in some pretty tough, tough areas. So for us, measurement really is about proxies. Um, we look at yields. Um, nothing's better than an increase in yield from year to year. Um, we look at quality of the produce. Um, we're looking at changes in income. And we've, we've had some recent um, experiences where three times the income happened over two years. That's, you know, that's something that's worthy. Uh, we look at reducing cost of production as soil health is improving. Um, and you need either fewer or, or no input of, say, fertilizer, um, we're also looking at the ratio of food produced to uh, use of water, uh, where that's used, um, and diversity of plant species. Um, we've, we've learned that um, in some of these places, and I can get into more of the examples later, but um, things that they used to grow that were very drought tolerant and meaningful to the communities were lost somewhere along the way. I mean, that's probably true in the Americas as well, right? Or very true in the Americas. But um, bringing back uh, species that they had some familiarity with decades ago is, is um, becoming another approach to diversity of plants and, and improving health of the soils. So just a few thoughts. Thank you. And when it comes to measurement of, of carbon benefits, um, obviously one of the holy grails out there for smallholder agriculture is to try and get more money to smallholders and you know there's been so many fascinating conversations about can we use carbon as a way to do that what are your views on how that is evolving because there are some tricky challenges there yeah we've we've got several um projects queuing up right now that have to do with um one is mangroves and then alternative livelihoods um and we're we're still in discussions with the funders for that one um we've got another that's peatlands with again, alternatives, because um, these farmers weren't making a living on the peatland. It was a very uh, exercise in futility, right? But they need to move off the peatland and then and then have a, a way to, for livelihoods. Um, so yeah, I, we, we are certainly um, engaged in that effort and interested in being a carbon project developer, um, but um, we also have limitations in, in what we can do as well, so. Okay, thank you. Uh, Britt, uh, over to you. Really interested to hear your views on how all this is evolving. I just did, ran a session on uh, biodiversity with uh, with Arla Foods earlier, with Anna from Arla Foods, and some of the things that Carmen was just saying about proxies and how we measure it in biodiversity sounded very familiar from that conversation. So it's interesting to see how these things overlap. I'm really keen to hear your point of view on, on how things are evolving uh, over at Stonyfield. Yeah, we have really focused in on how we can connect farm level decisions about management with better data about what is happening in soils and around the farm 
so that farms can make more informed decisions. Because we know that ultimately, if we want to be successful at driving change at the farm level to address climate change, it depends on each individual farmer or farm manager making their own set of decisions, which are really a complex set of decisions with a lot of factors that they weigh um, when, when they make these decisions, whether they're deliberate decisions or decisions that are made by default because they don't have time to address something. And so um, over the past five years, our work really focused in on this question because we started with modeling farm emissions and using tools like Comet and Cool Farm Tool. And they, they only get you so far. They don't get you in the organic dairy context to a place where you can point a producer in the right direction, especially when it comes to something as complex as soil carbon. And so we started talking um, with some other folks working in the space, including Bill Salas, who's now at Regrow, and Dorn Cox, who now runs this project called Open Technology Ecosystem for Agricultural Management, Open Team. And we helped to launch Open Team to bring together the software developers and researchers who are all working in this space to integrate their tools, to build interoperability between these tools, to make it more efficient to manage this farm level data. And so we really came at it from this high level approach of, of what are the tools that can help farmers drive towards better decision making and put a lot of effort into getting Open Team off the ground together with Bullsnack Center and the other leaders of that project, USDA, the Foundation for Food and Agriculture Research. Um, and now that Open Team is, is up and running and starting to build this interoperability at Stonyfield, we are starting to get our hands dirty at the farm level and working with a pilot set of farms to measure soil carbon and soil health. And again, Kind of like Carmen was saying, you know, we know that we can't just look at soil carbon as an isolated variable, because when we do that, and when we present that information to a farmer, they're kind of like, okay, what do I do with this? Like, it's not a meaningful data point from the perspective of farm management at this point in time. And most technical assistance providers don't look at soil carbon as a meaningful data point to inform farm management. And so we're trying to look at soil carbon and measure it alongside other aspects of soil health. And so from, you know, to answer your question from a technical perspective, we're doing pretty basic soil analysis. And that includes, you know, the measuring the macronutrients. We use a soil probe, we measure at 15 and 30 centimeters, and we use the Stratify app to help us identify where we're gonna sample um, and track those samples over time. And we've just really started this. So we're only in year two of soil sampling. Can I ask you a clarification question there? Do those soil sure. samples have to go off to a lab? I mean, is there, yes. a, is there or is there a, is, will there one day be the equivalent of a sort of PCR COVID test, <laughs> you know, whereby yeah. we'll do these <laughs> things? I mean, Anastasia may be able to answer that a bit in a minute, but I just wonder, you know, is that gonna be a key factor that sort of thing, that sort of innovation? We sure hope so, but we have not yet, like, we have not yet found the answer to that question. So we've been working with our SCI, which is an open team participant, and they manage the Stratify app, or they, they help to manage the Stratify app. And then um, uh, they also have a tool called Soil Stack, which is a spectral analysis tool. And as we started our soil sampling, we worked with them to um, build out some data sets. So on some of the farms, we did much more intense sampling 
so that they could have um, a, you know, a large pool of samples to work with to calibrate their, their camera. And um, I know that they're still working on that, but I know that they haven't, you know, they haven't really hit the nail on the head yet. So it's like, you know, we would really love to, you know, have that little camera and just be able to go out in the field and take a picture of our soil sample and know what the carbon levels were. Um, but if we just did that, it wouldn't tie back to the farm management question. And so I think we're always going to be wedded to some level of traditional soil management. Um, I mean, soil testing, you know, to inform management. It's, you know, it's where mm. I think we're at. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, Anastasia, I'm sure you have something to add to this, uh, no doubt. So over to you. Oh, Brittany, Brit Brit Gunn is so excited. Um, about like 25 different things you mentioned, and I'm not sure which direction to go in first. Um, first of all, I think for for the folks on the, on the panel, um, I think looking at Stonyfield as as one of the uh, leaders in the space of of actually convening providers and and helping to um, build the path to scalability, and we we have um, you know several partnerships when that's what's visible. I think it's necessary in this space. So I just want to start by saying you cannot just assume that there is like 15 tools out there and everything is nailed down. Like really we're in the stage group who are figuring things out. And um, it's not like every company needs to figure it out for uh, their own supply chain or product. Um, but I think it is important to, to chip in into this conversation. So just with that um, preface, um, now on the five most interesting out of 25 topics. <laughs> so first of all, um, we're just talking about, uh, you know, modeling versus soil sampling versus uh, decision support tools. Like that is really the space that Regrow specializes in. So we have been um, building software to help farmers make better decisions uh, in a way that is fully holistic and geospatially explicit, meaning that this is this field we're modeling. This is your farm that we're modeling. This is your climate, your soil types your elevations, your farm management history, all of this is as specific as we could possibly make it. And I want to emphasize that this is really so many innovations have come together to get us here. Um, and um, the modeling side of the house have only recently come to a point where we can go out, which we did, and collect um, a lot of calibration validation data um, because soil carbon testing data can be used either for directly looking at what are the um, soil health parameters of that particular piece of land, or it can be used as a larger data set in aggregate to calibrate the models that you can then use in conjunction with what Bridget was alluding to with our side with stratified soil sampling to actually propagate and arrive to what is called a project level estimate. So if we grouped all the farmers that wanted to work with the, roughly the same practices in the region, we, we would consider one eco region. Um, and there's a granularity to that, but the granularity is really within the triangle of scale, accuracy, cost. So to any of the questions of like, how do you decide? You just need to land on this triangle somewhere where it's logical, where someone can pay for this, where it's enough for someone to make the change in practices and it's meaningful enough to be um, rewarded for that um, outcome or it's meaningful enough to demonstrate the outcome. Um, so a couple of thoughts here, but basically the decision support tools are evolving. They are maturing. 
I, I have to admit that a lot more mature for row crop farmers because we have a ton more data there and they are a lot more mature in the developed uh, countries. Um, the, rather than developing countries, we have projects with Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation to really take this to sub-Saharan Africa. But it really, at that point, only starts with more data collection because that's an inevitable piece. We cannot really go and, and model something. And we are relying heavily, exactly as Carmen said, on a lot of proxies there, on the yield, on the inputs, on a lot of proxies This let us know that this is working. Whilst in the US, we're at a point where model is calibrated, validated for row crops, for a large um, variety of, I should say, row crops, like crops, the cropping systems. So they include specialty. Uh, we can do things up to almonds, but now we're really breaching out into rangeland and, and dairy on pasture. Um, like it's only now that we're getting to a point where there's enough interest, there's enough data, there's enough engaged um, interest from um, the producers. And I think not being so upstream focused, also stating the obvious that now I think we are at a point where we can envision the models that bring these products to market and help us actually pay the farmers and cover the costs of even stratified soil sampling. So a lot there, um, but hopefully good starting point to um, talk about decision support systems and how the soil sampling plays with modeling and um, how do those decisions make uh, take place. Anastasia, thank you. Uh, your last comment leads to a question, which is, you know, the and so what question, right? To so, say, you know, and so we can do this. So what? Uh, what does that mean for farmers? Because uh, you, you mentioned benefits for them. Uh, how do you see that evolving at the moment? Because it, it is a confusing picture at the moment. You see lots of mod pilots and models being utilised. But you wonder what it adds adds up to. So from your point of view, how far away are we from getting farmers any kind of financial benefit from this? Um, and what are the better examples you see out there that might scale? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question because I think it's worth saying for context that Regrow is the technology tool. It's, it's a software platform that includes modeling um, of, of soil carbon and crops, remote sensing and soil sampling. And it sits behind the program. So we're not the ones who are going to knock on farmers' doors. We work with brands and their supply chain partners to deliver these programs. So I guess Toby knows that and he's asking me the question of like, what are you seeing? Because we power all these programs you see out there. Um, I should say that future is here as far as the commodity crop space is concerned. P farmers are getting paid for the outcomes that have been generated using all these kind of logical current rules in a sense that like, let's put them into a project, let's have a buffer pool, let's decide how conservative we want to be, let's pay upfront before they need to adopt practices based off of the um, estimate. So basically the models, unlike just pure soil sampling, which they need to work in tandem, um, allow you to estimate the, the future outcomes with some level of uncertainty. So you can take part of that outcome, say, at least we're going to expect this and pay for part of that upfront, which really enables the farmer to, to adopt it. Then I wanted to also tackle this question from the perspective of like, what are the markets out there? And I would love to hear what um, Britton and Carmen have to say about this as well. Um, but we're seeing two, two parts, and I, I'm going to say like there's three, but the third, we don't really like it. Um, so let's start with the third. Uh, it's painful practices. And I think painful practices works in some cases, but it has limited applications when you really want to pull 
pull through the outcomes for the brand or for um, carbon market or whatever it is that you're doing. So there was some starting business models around like let's pay farmers for practices, but then it's really hard to reward performance. Second option is, of course, try to do net GHG and pay for that quote unquote carbon. But we're really we're talking about net GHG in carbon equivalence here. So what regrow would model will be um, nitrous oxide and methane and, and uh, all of the emissions, not just carbon. I just want to emphasize that that's carbon equivalence. And then last, um, there is this um, movement now and supported by USDA around climate smart commodities. And this is where we've seen a lot of interest in the kind of bucket uh, uh, premium or opportunity to uh, pull through um, identity preserved commodity, whether it's dairy or a particular um, crop. Uh, it can be um, like in our work with uh, Kellogg's that was announced recently, it's uh, it's rice for their rice krispies special case. And you can take that all the way to the box um, and different brands do it differently. Um, so those are the buckets that we're seeing and, and farmers are starting to, um, they're really rewarded for it. So like the last two years, we have been supporting the payments to farmers and they're quite large scale. Like we're talking about millions of acres now. Thank you. Really interesting. Um, Carmen, anything you'd like to add at this stage? Based well, on yeah, I mean, I, when Anastasia was talking, I was getting really excited because <laughs> if her tool could, could work, you know, it's all about me. And I'm <laughs> designing a program right now where um, we're looking at two counties in Kenya, um, 20,000 hectares of land, mixed agroforestry, and the idea is carbon sequestration and livelihoods and improvements, right? But we're going from purely a, a financial model and a model of, we, we know something about the costs on the ground and, and the reality on the ground because we've got people working there and, and we've had multiple projects in these two counties in the past. But it's all just modeled numbers, right? And we know there's there's high levels of, of drought and so if, if, I, if I had a way to look at the land and pick and choose, um, even at the highest level, even before we get to the specific interventions or the specific crops, a way to better select the where, then I've started off on a better path than just any 20,000 hectares will do. Um, it's only gonna be based on like our relationship with a particular community, which is important. I, don't get me wrong, that's very important. And yet within any particular community where we have experience and good relations and they trust us to make recommendations working with them and their knowledge, there's still gonna be some parcels of land that aren't going to work, right? Um, and so any information that can, can better tell us about the where for these different um, interventions that we're testing, um, because again, the people's lives depend on this. And so we don't wanna take them down a path where you know, their, their livelihoods are going to be negatively impacted. So that's all I have to say about excitement about that tool. Bring it on. <laughs> Thank you. Britt, anything you'd like to add? Yeah, sure. In our supply chain, we've been looking at what are the incentives that we can provide for farmers to first just work with us on trialing open team and the, the tools within it and then doing the soil testing with us and so we've landed on just doing a simple $2,000 per farm blanket payment. Um, but we, we wanna look you know, more broadly at how, what does it really take to incentivize 
change and um, is it a per ton of carbon payment? Uh, we source a lot of our milk from the Organic Valley Cooperative and they're exploring a $15 per ton payment to their farms that would adjust with the market rate. Um, so we're, we're exploring these incentive options with the knowledge that you know, voluntary carbon markets are developing that farms could also choose to participate in. And um, that could be a risk to us as we have a science-based target and we want to keep those emissions reductions within our own supply chain rather than seeing them being sold elsewhere in the marketplace where we then couldn't count them. Um, but I'll also note that what we've seen of the voluntary markets so far is that they don't serve smaller operations well. So at Stonyfield, the average herd size of the farms that supply us is about 77 cows, which is, is pretty small for the dairy sector and definitely um, too small in my understanding for the voluntary carbon market to be interested in working with those farms on a farm by farm basis because there's just not enough efficiency in how you measure. And I think whether we're looking at internal activities to track emissions reductions in supply chains or making these voluntary markets successful, we have to get to a place where it's more efficient to measure soil carbon and track changes over time um, in order to engage a larger swath of agriculture in those activities. Because um, you know, if we only engage the largest farms because they're the easiest to work with. We're just leaving so much on the table when it comes to the opportunity to improve soil carbon around the world. That's such a great point, Britt. Um, Anastasia, as the technical expert, I was going to ask you, you know, can we get a PCR test? Can we get a, a lateral flow test for soil carbon uh, coming down the track? Because I keep thinking to myself, oh, if I could invent that, I could make billions. Uh, but I'm probably <laughs> not going to be able to invent that. Is anyone going to? Is it possible? And could it unlock the kind of, uh, the, the kind of value that Britt is just referring to that needs to be unlocked? Yeah, I'm glad you came back to that point because I... As a hyperspectral PhD, <laughs> I can tell you I get very excited about like the devices looking at anything and being able to see what we cannot see and measure what we cannot measure. But I'm also someone who spent a lot of time trying to do that, um, just over crops, uh, transparently, not over soil. Um, and agricultural systems are such that they're they're dynamic and they're really dependent on the conditions uh, when uh, certain information is, is captured. Um, so what Bridget was talking about, those types of cameras that can see what is kind of the composition of, of the soil core, for example. It's a little bit easier when you've already taken the soil core and, for example, you scan it because uh, um, then you rely on what's called signatures. Um, so basically, like, what is the the invisible color that you're seeing that tells you that there's more this trace elements of this or more elements of that. Um, the reality is the soil of taken from the same farm, from the same spot, in the same core, in different conditions will actually give you different results. Um, moreover, I'm not going to like pretend that okay, this is um, absolutely impossible. I mean, there's great uh, science minds working on this and we're collaborating with them. So Rebro doesn't necessarily go to the farm ourselves. We uh, work with um, agricultural advisors and providers to capture that data. So we uh, work on this interface where we suggest how to stratify and they actually do the, the sampling. And it would be ideal if we can reduce that cost and we can collect more 
more data. I'm going to come back to this thought because the more data collection in the real time is not the holy grail. Um, but back to, to the cameras, there's different types of technology. I'm going just to list a few. So there is this kind of PCR test. So like what if camera is looking at the core? Then there is technology that's looking to, for example, like you um, drag a ground penetrating radar and you're mapping the soil um, electric conductivity and other elements. And then you're also correlating that to what you're sampling um, with the caveat that the intra-field variability, so what is within the field, is a lot more variable than you are actually going to get when you do um, 100 farms. Like you are going to look at just a different mix of the same elements. So it's really you get confused about this in agriculture. Um, and then there's technology that is um, getting developed to actually do um, the combustion or to avoid combustion and to do different types of processing in the lab that reduces the cost and increases the types of processing. So there's people looking at like every step from when you pull the core to when you get the numbers out uh, to try to make um, um, progress on, on these different approaches. Um, and we believe that some of them um, will succeed and be um, useful for different types of applications, because that's what we're talking about here. Um, what I wanted to mention is that what are we comparing with? You know, what is good enough? We're comparing with the data that comes from soil sampling um, and combustion in the labs. There's many partners that we have that develop novel types of uh, soil uh, testing, um, like it can be trace genomics, they're looking at other elements that are not necessarily just soil carbon in the soil samples. And what you get into then is when you send the same sample to four different labs, you get four different answers. And if you do that 100 times, you have a very interesting random distribution. So when you actually like face that problem as a modeler, you're like, okay, well, where do I even start? And do I do it with one lab? Do I do it with as many labs as possible? Then you're uh, hearing um, about Brit's experience, which totally makes sense in terms of like, let's do high sampling in some areas and some stratified sampling. This is usually how these technologies get developed. So that makes total sense. But then if you send that to the lab, which lab do you send it to? So we just need to um, be more comfortable with the fact that there is uncertainty in these numbers. And if we look at forestry carbon marketplace, the market, as Bill Salas says, uh, absorbs that uncertainty. This is something for which we can have a market mechanism. And uh, we basically say, okay, as far as the farmer is concerned, they need to see one number. It's uh, the decision of a payer, which type of number they're seeing, more conservative or less conservative, because the model gives you a distribution. So you can pick where you want to be on that distribution. Um, and is going to be uh, inherent to that number, all of the uncertainties about the inputs, the weather, um, the, the soil sampling that you did uh, when you collected data to calibrate the model. So even if we had the PCR test right in the field uh, that gave us a lot of information, that PCR test would be calibrated against real data that was collected that has uncertainty. So there's no perfect measurement and perfect kind of meter stick for soil carbon in the world. Um, Okay. But Thank we know you. how to deal with it. Well, I'd love to jump in on that if I can, Toby, because I think what Anastasia is talking to points to the need for a comprehensive national soil carbon or you know international soil carbon database. We shouldn't just be talking about the U.S. Um, so that we can at least start to have 
a central repository of data that we can use to directionally track change over time. Because ultimately that's gonna help us be much more sure about where we're headed. And I know folks are working on this. There's a group called the Soil Inventory Project that's been looking at how to create this. And I'm sure there are other efforts underway as well. But I think we just, we really need to work on building out the shared data bank so that we all understand what direction we're headed in. Yeah, if you're not going to kick me out, I have an example of that, and I think you're going <laughs> to like it. Um, in Australia, where we started part of the company, they actually have recently launched like a USDA-level initiative to pay farmers and private enterprises that hold historical soil carbon data. This is very important. Models need historical data because we cannot just in real time watch things like we need five, 10 years of history and then we can look back and say how accurate we are. So what um, Australian government did, they literally allocated billion bucks, I don't know, call it a number. I mean, US probably has a lot more money to spend on such things, but is not um, looking after this uh, initiative because we just did use the climate smart, okay, great. But in Australia, we have a precedent where they basically are saying, you can bring your private data, we are going to anonymize it, it's going to be this big data set. The science agency, CSIRO, did say that like there is no data we can find for this that is enough in the public domain for us to calibrate models and to actually come into the future of soil carbon markets for Australia to actually be able to leverage its huge land potential and, and production. You know, they're a big exporter. Um, so I think we have a precedent where we, as a modeling community and as a, uh, a commercial community that's really passionate about it, we can not just say, okay, we need this survey. We can say, look, in the last nine months, here's another government, they launched it and it's working. There's people who have this data, but it's all very fragmented. So how can we actually compensate to bring this data together just like uh, there's investment in National Agricultural Statistics Survey that is now enabling a lot of work of companies with, like what Regrow is doing. That's the foundation, that data. Have you seen, have any of you seen any interest from any international institutions to take on this challenge and try and do some coordination here? Open team is starting to look at how they address this, um, you know, with their interoperable set of tools and the network of farms that are starting to use them. They can start to build out a, a wide data set um, with permissions. Farms can share their data in. Um, and I know they're looking at building this data bank, um, but they're still in the early stages on it. So I don't, I don't think anyone has really done this yet. Okay. Well, um, who in the audience has a question or comment they'd like to make? You can join us uh, if you'd like to. Uh, so, again, I noticed you put your video on briefly. And can I congratulate you for having the most confident profile picture I've ever seen on Zoom? Uh, if you'd like to join us and say something, you're very welcome. Um, in the meantime, while I'm waiting to hear if someone wants to, um, I had a, a question for Britt. I mean, you, you, Britt, you mentioned this voluntary carbon market price of 15 dollars a ton i think that's a price microsoft and others have looked at as well but if if the markets aren't supporting that 
It's been suggested to me by some carbon experts that I know that if you want to make something happen in a group of companies and farmers, you just kind of get them together, fix a price and get on with it yourself. Because the, currently the verification costs for smallholders using the model that was developed for larger scale projects is so high, it just doesn't work. So you might as well just get on with it yourself. Uh, and, and my response was, well, doesn't that just lead to a fragmentation of approaches and, you know, um, just sort of too much diversification. And the rejoinder I got back was, well, somebody needs to do something here because we need to work out ways to bring down costs and to create models. And using a model set up for large land parcels to try and engage smallholders in carbon isn't going to work. And I wondered if you had any thoughts on that and whether that's a conversation you're having about, you know, how to monetize and set up a system for, you know, farmers who have 77 cows or, or whatever the you know, the, the number you use to describe an average dairy farmer. I, I think that this is kind of the crux of what we're trying to get at with open team is to make it just very efficient for farmers to manage their own data, to streamline their record keeping. The open team mantra is enter data once, use it many times. And the goal here is that when a farmer tracks something, in our case, they might track it for organic certification, we can then feed that data into Comet or Cool Farm Tool. And we can you know, pull in the actual soil testing data that we've done. And ultimately a company like Regrow could take, take this data and, and use models to help guide decision support for the farmers in the future about specific changes to pasture management. And I think that as we get better at integrating these tools so that they are interoperable with each other, the cost is going to come down over time. Um, but you know, it's not it's not the holy grail. We have we still have a lot of work to do to bring smallholder farmers on board. Yeah, and I guess what you're saying is that data collection and Anastasia was talking about historical data. There's a lot of very basic work to do first, so that we have a, the data sets we need to measure progress and show that indeed the right kind of changes are happening. Uh, interesting. Yeah, what's our baseline? And progress is slow, right? When you're working on improving soil carbon, you're not gonna see results year over year. It's gonna take a couple of years for that to work. And if you have a drought, you might just, you know, have to be happy with saying, wow, we maintained our soil carbon levels in this drought and call that good. And that's not, you know, from a market and additionality perspective, that's not gonna get you very far. So I think we still have a lot to learn about how farms are really going to be able to engage in this over time. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. Anastasia, I'll come to you then. Um, just to build off, and I'm, I'm interested to, to hear what Carmen um, says in this as well, in the sense that um, how do we enable smallholder farmers to your previous question? And, and Britt really made a point around, well, if not going to bring the cost down, if it's not going to be more efficient, there's obviously not going to be any incentive left for the smallholder farmers to be able to participate because we're going to spend all the money on soil sampling, basically, or at least that's our experience. And I wanted to um, make um, a, 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 to note something here that um, the way we're starting to look at it and the way we include that smallholder community is really by looking at the aggregate or what we call the project scale. So you group the farms that want to participate and then you stratify the soil. Basically, you're saying, okay, out of this, this whole region where these farms are, what are the common soil types? What are the agro regions, et cetera, as I was, as I was talking before? But then you can say, can they behave as a group? And like, what if this was one big farm and 
what would be their potential, uh, what would be our confidence as, as modelers and, and decision support provi tools providers uh, to really say, I, I think we should expect these, these results. Um, I think that is starting to be possible because now there's digital tools where we can actually do that with a brand and that's kind of what, what regrow powers. Um, so it's uh, when the, the conversation is evolving from everything is soil sampling based to actually let's do a combination approach so it scales, then you can start looking at this project level um, engagement that makes it ultimately more equitable and Gregor's mission is to advance resilient agriculture on every acre globally. So like we really think a lot about that as well, like how it can be affordable and accessible through the data. A lot of people don't record the data. Where does it come from? How can we integrate with every system that they can possibly have to not ask them for it twice? And it's all kind yeah. of part of the impact. I would love to have a separate chat with you because separately from Innovation Forum, I'm involved in running something called the Sustainable Wine Roundtable. And I'm trying to do develop looking at an insetting program for wine retail down to wine producer. And I've got a, a group of producers who represent quite a lot of land between them because their estates are really large. And I'm wondering if I can connect them up with retailers for insetting their own carbon footprint. Um, so I'd love to have a separate chat with you sometime about it. It's all kind of non-profit because despite being the wine industry no one's got any money although they are the richest smallholders in the world don't let them tell you any differently um, compared to to many of the ones you guys deal with so we'll talk about that another time there's lots of great questions coming in for you uh, Katerina you had a question you've turned your camera on so I'm going to come to you and see if you want to ask it in person hi sure I'll ask it in person um, I'm here on behalf of uh, Katia I work with Katia I'm an agronomist um, Candice Pinal from Anglo-American Crop Nutrients so we're going to start really looking at uh, the impact of different um, sort of fertilization practices on carbon sequestration. So something that um, I've been struggling with is trying to figure out the right methodology for in-field soil carbon sampling, you know, because um, there doesn't seem to be one set global standard. So what would be really good is to just understand what are the minimum criteria that you need to generate good data. Sorry, I was on mute chatting away, then I realized I was interrupting you. Sorry, but go ahead. <laughs> I'm just going to say if you put five soil scientists in a room, you will get 10 answers to that question. Yeah. I think it has to be the nexus of what can you afford and, you know, what is the most dense sampling rate that you can afford and how, you know, how much can you link that to management decisions? I'm on the same page there. And, and basically the way that you would make that decision and the way that you would make that trade-off happen is by uh, performing stratification. So you need to know what is the extent um, of like geographical extent. Like we're gonna enroll farmers that are in this region and we're not going to go outside of it or we enrolled all these farmers, then we can make a decision on stratification, which is the, the normal flow of events. Um, you go out, track farmers and you have them all you know where they are then you can make decisions of like what are the soil types and, and regions they're on and then you put that through stratification it can be tools like regrow has one internally because we develop measurement verification software but rsi is uh one that we use with some partners as well for those who want to use that one we mentioned it um 
And that gives you effectively the key locations to do the sampling in. There's a lot of um, statistics involved. You know, we have a very senior statistician whenever we make decisions around tweaking that methodology. Um, so it's not like there is one particular car of their approved methodology. It all really comes down to like what is enough. And enough is defined by the quality and the certainty. So it's the accuracy and the uncertainty so of, of the outcomes and what you are able to, to pay um, and what you need to pay the farmers. Okay, um, mind if I just ask you a couple more then more pointed questions? Um, so things like, you know, if you're looking at different depths, you know, some of the methodologies look at dividing that by soil horizon, whereas others would just go for, you know, the top 30 and then 30 to 60. Um, does that not matter? Um, um, I, I think we can go down the, the rabbit hole and probably... Uh, Toby wants us to also take other questions, but the quick answer to this is that it does matter. Um, and for market applications, like you've heard Bert say, we do 15 inches and then 30 <laughs> inches, and that's one of the approaches. Um, we model down to the to a meter depth, um, and there is uh, the need to to model down to that depth. Um, and the type of soil sampling that we're able to access is different across the different depths and it's it's quite important like as far as the modeling is concerned we actually have kind of a model upon model when we need to go deep uh, it is quite important and then you get into permanence and then we can finish in three hours with uh, more questions than we started with um, okay thanks well we've only got a few minutes left um and just to go up a level i suppose as we as we finish uh david horlock had a good point here. David, do you want to say it yourself rather than me reading it out? Thanks, Toby. Um, yeah, Toby, I've had a fascinating week in Singapore here where they're all setting up There's carbon exchanges. There's a lot of the, you know, people trading on carbon. And, and one of the things I've learned this week is it's not just about carbon. It's about the story behind the carbon because carbon is an output which is highly correlated with good behaviours. And if farmers treat this as a wheat commodity or corn or whatever, they're just going to get a commodity price, which is not going to right, reflect the energy and the good things that have been done here. So I really encourage people, whether you're in a consortia, you're a grower group or whatever your scheme is, there's lots of carbon platforms out there which can access the marketplace and they can help you dress up your story and your story could be about regenerative ag and you know planting the perennials and wildlife corridors and minimum tillage and environmental impacts and you know all the great stuff you do if you've got community activities there great that's even better you know but sell the sizzle and not the sausage get out of the commodity rut because then you're going to be stuck at the 10 bucks right and this week i've seen programs of a ton of carbon carbon is a commodity i've seen it from $10 and I've seen it as high as $55 in one week. And that's people selling the story and the USDs. And there's, there's other carbon platforms out there in communities that are going carbon plus two UNSDGs, plus three, plus four. Now, the yeah. problem at the moment is defining what good looks like. There's no standardization out there, right? And I know some people hate standards and that, but if you don't have standards and methodology, we all end up speaking different languages and, and, and we don't get to a consensus of what good looks like. So 
Um, the good news is, is that, you know, people are looking at this. It's not just carbon. It's a story. And I'd really encourage people to look at the story and all the good stuff you're doing because, you know, we're depleting. No, is that David? The pause where we'll work out whether that was your connection or ours cutting out there, David. Um, we lost you for a second there. Um, I was just saying that, you know, we've got to address this and get good premiums for it because if we don't get the appropriate premiums for it, we're not going to drive the behaviours and give the yeah. landowners and the farmers credit for exercising and doing the right thing, right, and future-proofing livelihoods and so forth. It's not going to be done if it's a commodity. It's got to be done as fixing and regenerating the land and getting back to its yeah. former state. It's a multifaceted set of benefits based around yeah. a story of securing and right. driving resilience for what we love and need, yeah. rather than trading on the exchange. I think is what, what you're saying. Yeah. And then, the, this is, the criticisms of the rush to, to to net zero and the focus on CO2, you know, have, are starting to encompass that view. And I think it's a very interesting creative tension. Uh, we will have to leave that creative tension for another session, though, uh, because we're out of time for this one. But this was really fascinating. I learned a huge amount. Uh, I hope you did too. Thank you all. Uh, for your great comments and questions and thanks so much to Anastasia to Carmen and to Britt for their insights uh, we're going to take a quick break we'll be back for the next session soon but thank you so much uh, for your insights and just remember you can come back and watch this anytime on the Pathable site for the next 12 months so thank you all once again and see you soon